Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let us discuss Washington now and let us try to get out through the week where maybe policy will be committed in Washington. There's no one better to talk to than the gentle lady from New Orleans. Henrietta Trace joins us from Veda Partners. Henrietta, you and the rest of the world have to get to the wonderful Breeze-Brady distraction next weekend. There's a small football game in your New Orleans. Is a nation, seriously, is a nation going to still be standing on Friday to get to that important match? I would say you can't keep New Orleans down. So we'll just kink our, kink cake our way through this and get to the end, no matter what happens in D.C. We will see that game. We will see that game, but we've got to get through the game of this political crisis as well. Frame out policymakers in Washington, your expertise with the constitutional crisis we face. I think the next nine days, as you were reminding me earlier, is going to be everything from resignation to the 25th Amendment, um, going back to the Confederacy and things that can be done to um, eject lawmakers who are potentially um, fostering rebellion uh, to impeachment, certainly. That'll be going on all the way through the 20th. And then what we've heard from the Democratic leadership in the last couple of days is that we might actually hold over this idea of impeachment well into 2021 so that Democrats and some Republicans can ensure that President Trump can never run for office again. So I don't think this storyline is going to get behind us anytime soon. This week will obviously be filled with a lot of drama and back and forth. Uh, but the nation will move on to a Biden administration and we'll get there soon enough. Henrietta, help us parse out the reality, the substance from the drama. I mean, there's a lot of drama and there's a lot of reality, but what aspects of what we've seen unfold in Washington, D.C., with the insurrection, with some of the fallout from how quickly law enforcement responded, has long-lasting implications for policy? I think the amazing thing about Wednesday of last week was that we got the Georgia Senate elections and that insurrection at the exact same time. And one of the things I noticed even before the insurrection started was that Republicans were eager to move on to a policy discussion, get away from the sort of cult of personality association the Republican conference currently has with Donald Trump and move to a discussion about policy. And so that actually has driven a number of Republican members in both the House and Senate and certainly their lobbyists to say, we do want to pass a bill with Joe Biden early in 2021. I don't want to suggest that this will be a kumbaya moment that will last for eternity, but I think we get 90 days here for a 60 vote threshold bipartisan bill that gets 10 to 15 Republican votes in the Senate. Um, not really sure exactly how many yet in the House, but those are uh, members who want to have policy to debate, want to be able to move on from the discussion of Donald Trump. So I don't I think in the immediate term, which is probably the best way to approach this situation right now is just day by day. Uh, we are going to see even more optimism for a 60 vote threshold stimulus package right out of the gate in a Biden administration that Republicans are expecting to work on, not just hoping to work on, but really expecting to pass with him. So I think that's the biggest impact, um, at least for our clients. This is key, and Henrietta, you phrased that so well, this idea that the turmoil that we saw in Washington is actually pushing Republicans and Democrats further towards some sort of consensus to work on policy, to move forward from uh, what they would like to be simply a distraction. How big could this stimulus be? Uh, great question. I mean, it depends on who you talk to right now. I think Democrats are going to start with a humongous ask 
two, three, four trillion dollars, as we've discussed in the past. Uh, Republicans are going to get sticker shock probably anywhere above 750. Um, opening salvos from Republican leadership I've spoken to have suggested a $500 billion number. But the reality is with Democrats in control of the House and Senate, they're not going to waste their time on a $500 billion package. So my base case assumption is that at the very low end, we get something in the 750 to $800 billion range. At the high end, maybe a $1.8 trillion. Um, that's going to depend on the size of any direct payments they want to get out. As you all know, the, un the payments to individuals or any individual side stimulus is expensive just because of how many individuals yeah. there are that you need to give money to. Yeah, so, I don't mean I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I am because at least and I remember there was a jobs report on Friday, and I understand within the original Washington, you and everybody else is dealing right now. I'm not even sure the politicians are aware of how ugly that jobs report was. Do they care, and does it create a new urgency around the real crises plural that we have? That's exactly the narrative I think that's important. Urgency and crises, those two words that you use, are going to propel this package forward. Um, it's beneficial on every single level, both the need and urgency basis to call this a crisis. The jobs report, the COVID deaths, the shutdowns we're seeing nationwide, um, the worst hospitalization rates we've seen thus far, um, the crisis of unemployment obviously brought to the fore by the long-term unemployed and the most recent jobs number. And the benefit of a crisis and this urgency that feeds right. on itself is that you don't have to pay for this. And that is the path of yeah. least resistance to getting 60 votes. So Henry, all that helps. Yeah. One final question, Henrietta. Does it matter to you, as we were talking with a number of our guests this morning, to see Republicans become independents a la Murkowski of Alaska? That is humongous. I mean, Senators Murkowski, Collins, Romney, Ben Sass, those are members who could potentially split the difference between a 50-50 Republican-Democratic majority split in the Senate and really give Democrats a functioning majority. That's what we saw last time in 2001 when this happened. It took until May for a Republican to defect to the Independent Conference and caucus with Democrats. If that happens, um, that really smooths our path to another reconciliation bill later yeah. on this year which would be more stimulus. Henrietta, thank you so much. Henrietta Trey's VEDA Partners. There's a question, though, the froth that we're seeing come off the top in some stocks. Are we seeing commensurate moves within the credit space? It does not seem like it, but perhaps there is not the same froth. This is one of the big existential questions facing people searching for income. Brian Weinstein among them. Morgan Stanley Investment Management, head of Global Fixed Income. Joining us now, Brian, are you seeing a similar type of frothiness in aspects of the credit market as people point to in aspects of equities? Oh man, after listening to you guys for the last few minutes, I feel like we're so we're so boring. Um, <laughs> fixed income has some froth in it, like anything else. It's, it's moved up and it's been a straight line, but nothing really parabolic, right? I think it's been a bit more rational, a bit more slow, led by the Fed, led by low rates, and we've seen a small reversal of that in, in real yields and in regular interest rates. And but credit spreads are still tight; people are still looking for income. You, you can't get it, so I feel like there is froth, but it doesn't compare in the same way to to the things that you guys were just discussing. Does that affect your investment thesis, this idea that you're not seeing the same frothiness, so that's a green light to continue to go deeper into risk and credit? 
You know, yes, yes and no. I mean, certainly investors are speaking with their wallets, and they are moving to riskier assets. We see flows into emerging markets, flows into things with income like high yield and even bank loans. And, and what it makes us want to do is be a little bit more slow and steady. I mean, fixed income is supposed to be a bit more boring than, than, than Bitcoin or equities. Um, so what we're doing is we're not changing our views based on these manic market moves, and we're trying to take it in, in, into account yeah. the, the impact of the historical events we're seeing. Right? We don't want to be over overconfident, but we think more stimulus is coming. Um, we obviously have the Democrats coming, um, so we'll have maybe slightly higher taxes. So all those things are going to play into our, uh, into our thought, but it's slow and steady. Uh, Brian, you talk in your research note of winners and losers. If we go back to single-digit returns and even bond returns of, say, 4, 5, 6, 7 percent, how do you parse a winner to get out to a double-digit return of 10 percent? Yeah, double-digit returns and fixed income keep getting keep getting harder. Um, and so I think what you do is you stick to your fundamental research, right? There are all kinds of sectors that have been really beaten up um, but by this. I mean, energy for the last couple of years, for sure, and then things like gaming and, and other other places where the pandemic has hit. So as an active manager, it helps, I think, to be slow and steady. We're not going to get double-digit returns in a week, in a month. You talk about, you know, things moving 20% a day or in over a weekend. You know, it's, it's going to take, I think, a bit of a longer time, and you'll have to get thematic um, active selection right as opposed to just owning credit or just owning high yield. That's not going to get you there. I, I know you're not doing technical analysis, but what level of the 10-year yield up, price lower is a trip point, is a Weinstein moment where you say, oops, bonds lower? I think we're really close. Um, I was surprised, actually. I mean, it wasn't a big move, but over, as we got over 110, the people didn't get more nervous. Uh, Tom, I would say in that 125 to 150 range, if you don't get the Fair. Fed coming right out, and, and they probably won't, if the Fed doesn't come right out and, and complain about it, um, I, I think that's where people get nervous. Because a move back towards 2%, um, and you probably do have to have the central banks doing some more unnatural things to cap the rate. Um, that'll have impacts on the dollar, it'll have impacts on, on psyche, and obviously on valuation. So, but a lot of people do expect the Fed to jump in, right? I mean, you're saying that the Fed would have to, but they would, because otherwise you would get some sort of disruption in uh, credit markets and financial conditions. When you talk about the defense of boring bonds, this idea that there's almost <laughs> this defensiveness in your discussion, it's not that exciting, but we're solid, we're steady, we're an, a, a reliable investment. Do you see credit as being sustained even with a rise of yields to 125, 150 in the benchmark rate? Yes, I and mean, we're sure there'll be some bumps along the way, right? This will not continue to be a straight line tighter. Um, but we do think you'll see money coming in at higher yields. We do think credit um, is, is on decent footing. And as you say, um, you have the Fed uh, at your back somewhere out there, and you have the, the government at your back with more stimulus somewhere out there. So, again, it won't be the double-digit return corporate year. Um, but if you do need a couple percent, as you look in some of these sectors, EM, high-yield loans um, that still have, uh, still have some yield, you can still do okay, even if yields move up a little bit. Um, and as you say, the Fed will step in at some point. Where in the world is the best value right now, Brian? Probably in emerging markets still. I mean, we've seen the flows in that direction. Things that benefit from a weaker dollar. Um, that's probably still the, the, the thing that has the, if the Fed does step in, where's the release valve? Probably in the, in the dollar weakening. So EM is, is, a, is a good spot. Um, high yield that, down in credit, again, when you can do your homework. And, and it's not uh, just high yield data. It's something you know, interesting and, and, and unique. Um, those things with yield, I think, are still places you want to go. Brian Weinstein, thank you so much. From Morgan Stanley Investment Management, we appreciate your time. Team Surveillance keeps a lovely ship's bell over by the desk where they all sit. 
And every time I say go to cash, they ring the bell. (laughs) (laughs) The bell's been ringing a lot over the last three years. We talk about people that get bonds right, that have gotten right, low yields. We talk about people who get the equity markets right. But in the world of equities, no one has consistently done it better. And Benjamin Laidler at HSBC at Tower Hudson's as well. And not only did he nail two years ago, did he nail last year, but this year he continues the enthusiasm. Ben Laidler, thank you so much for joining us. Has all that went on last week shaken your bull conviction? Um. I, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, what went on last week was was was, was shocking in, in in sort of very many ways. But I, I guess the sort of outline for this year is really unchanged. I mean, we are looking at, I think, just a historic growth year, uh, where expectations, frankly, are still too low, both for GDP growth and for earnings growth. And I think that's going to be really what's going to drive the surprise, uh, the upside surprise for this year. And and it's going to come against the backdrop of. I think still very benevolent sort of policy support. Um, and I think that's going to allow valuations to you know, come down a little bit, but still remain much higher than they have been historically. And that's really, I think, the combination that you need to focus on for this year. I mean, that, I, I think we're setting ourselves up for a very, very rare sort of third year of uh, consecutive strong equity gains. You, you, you've seen it uh, you know, yeah. count on three fingers how many times you've seen it over the last 50 or 60 years that people are maybe right to be cautious here but I, I think that I, I think that outlook is is what we're playing for here and I actually right. feel probably a bit better about it now than I did um, you know maybe not because of last week but certainly over the last sort of couple of weeks I think the outlook has probably firmed up Ben what's so important here is along the way there's a nuance of sectors is this a blunt instrument of a market just lifting? Or tell us your sector nuance, the distinctions between two years ago, one years ago, and your sector allocation now. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so I would say sort of sectors and countries. I mean, I, I think you definitely get paid to, um, I mean, I, I, I prefer to call it a sort of catch up of these sort of value cyclical sectors and also international markets rather than a rotation. Um, because I think everything's going up. I just think the sort of value, cyclical and international markets are probably going up a bit more than the sort of winners of last year. But I do think everything's going up. Um, and and um, the, it's a very different environment. I mean, we, I think right now you should be reaching for risk. You should be reaching for growth. Um, in many ways, it's sort of the opposite of last year. So we're you know, very focused on places that you know, have um, you know, value and cyclicals are probably going to grow three to four times more than the sort of winners of last year, uh, this year. And you're paying third to 50% lower valuations. I mean, that's basically, I think, the outlook for this year. So, you know, where do I get that most operating leverage to this, to, to this environment of higher GDP growth and higher yeah. bond yields? Um, it's, it's industrials, yeah. it's small cap, it's financials, it's, it's emerging markets, it's a bit of Europe. Um, th- this is where I think the, yeah. the, uh, the most upside. Yeah. I mean, Paul, to make to make this clear, Ben Laidler was long the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Talk about an out of the out of the money call there, Ben. You know, at some point, well, we're about to go into the fourth quarter earnings season here, Ben. And at some point, earnings have to matter. It can't just be the Fed flooding the market with liquidity. What's your earnings outlook here for 2021 and maybe into next year? 
Yeah, so I completely agree with that. I mean, that's fourth quarter. You know, earnings do need to sort of keep delivering. And, um, and, and I think they sort of have been, right? I mean, we've just come off two quarters of the biggest earnings beats you've, uh, you've ever seen in recent history. Um, and um, I think this is going to be a sort of another quarter where you see sort of very strong earnings beats, one. And two, who's been leading those beats? It's exactly those sectors um, that I've just been sort of talking about. It's, um, uh, it, it's been those most sort of cyclical sectors with the most depressed earnings. So I, that's what I'm looking for for this quarter, of that sort of narrative to continue of just more earnings beat, driving further earnings uh, sort of upgrades and those beats coming out of these most sort of depressed sectors. But to answer your question, sort of, you know, uh, earnings outlook for next year, um, or sorry, for this year, I just have to get used to saying that in the U.S., um, you know, 20, 20% in the U.S., 30% internationally. Uh, and I think there's probably, um, uh, I think when all is said and done, those numbers are going to be about at least 10% too low uh, across the board. Um, when you look back historically, um, you know, very rarely do analysts sort of lowball earnings. Uh, but when they do, it's either because we're coming out of recession or it's because we've somewhere along the line, we're getting sort of more fiscal stimulus um, be, being poured uh, into the market. And this year we have got both of those things uh, and potentially we're about to get an even, you know, another a, a, another slug of fiscal uh, expansion. So I think earnings are far too low. Um, and, you know, consensus says 20 percent for U.S. this year. When all is said and done, I think we're probably closer to 30. All right. So, Ben, you've taken your career kind of looking at this global, uh, this equity business on a global scale. On globally right here as we start 2021, where do you see some of the best opportunities uh, on a global outlook basis? Yeah. So, as I say, I mean, we are definitely looking at, you know, assets which have been deeply out of favor for the last decade or so. Um, you know, internationals one and, and sort of value stroke cyclicals is another one. I mean, those two together have probably underperformed, um, you know, growth in the U.S. by, you know, over 200 percentage points over the last decade. Uh, so this, I think, is the change, um, both on the value cyclical side and also to your point on the international side. Um, so I'd be looking at I'd, I'd be looking at EM, you know, specifically, um, you know, the more cyclical bits of EM, sort of LATAM, uh, Samia, Frontier Market, basically the bits that didn't do well last year, which is really all about China, uh, and, and bits of Europe, um, especially sort of domestic, cyclical Europe, financials in Europe, um, you know, until very recently, those were pretty much the cheapest, most out of favor, most hated uh, sort of segments. Um, that, that's where I'd be looking. I mean, I guess the sort of caveat, um, and, and, and I would say, you know, what do you get for that? You basically get twice the growth mm. from those segments that you do in the US, and you're basically only paying, you know, a third less in terms of, in, in terms of the valuation. So that's why I think it's worth Looking, um, you know, l looking internationally. I guess the one caveat uh, is, is currencies. Um, That's right. you know, Euro's obviously been strengthening. Yeah. Yen's obviously been strengthening. I mean, Ben, this um, is so and, important. It's right. right. And I was just going to say that's a pretty big headwind for some of these companies, which which are you know big international players. Um, so, so I would just there are some caveats right. there. But what if you don't get that consensus? Mark McCormick was on from TD Securities. And Ben Laidler, I mean, Mark is really pushing against consensus. He's got your equity optimism, your optimism on a recovery through all of these challenges. And he says the great unspoken could be strong dollar this year. What do the equity markets do if we get a Mark McCormick dollar? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that would clearly be negative. I mean, I'm, I'm not looking for a big, significant dollar weakness from here. I mean, you've actually had a lot. Um, I, I, I'll, you know, I, I think markets can do well with sort of dollar stabilization. Okay. And, and, I'm not, and I'm not sure I see the ingredient for, 
you know, meaningfully stronger dollar. Um, but, but again, um, the, you know, going back to your initial point, I mean, if we don't get that big earnings surprise, I mean, clearly we're going to make lot we're just going to, we're going to make less money. I mean, I think you're, you know, you're looking at sort of flattish, um, mm-hmm. a flattish year at that point. You know, markets do, you know, obviously do a pretty good job of pricing things in ahead of time, which is why you very rarely see that sort of third year of, 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 of strong gains. So I think it probably turns, a um, you know, a pretty strong year into a flattish year. Uh, I'm not sure it completely derails it. Mm. Um, you know, twenty percent earnings growth is still, um, you know, still a big number. And I think more importantly, I think we begin to focus a bit more on, on, you know, actually next year at some point, where I still think you're going to see, um, you know, a, a sort of flow through from this year into next year and still decent, right. decent earnings at that point and a forbearance and, and a sort of, you know, reasonably uh, reasonable forbearance from the Fed, which I, I think will support valuations. Benjamin Laidler, thank you so much. Tara Hud sitting here on optimism within the equity markets. Well, there are financials, there are investments as well. There's also, of course, a constitutional crisis in Washington. But more than anything, we're all living the pandemic, living the reality of what we are going to do. Is Katie Passaretti out of the Johns Hopkins University system at Atrium Health, Charlotte, North Carolina, and not so much in the trenches of what we're doing, but in the, hey, we've got to get this done of what we're doing in vaccination. Katie Passaretti, what is your best practice? right now to ramp up our vaccination programs? Yeah, certainly. You all were just talking about, you know, transitioning testing sites, larger arenas into vaccination sites. I do think the more people we can get vaccinated, you know, as soon as possible, as supply allows and making sure that we're prioritizing those at higher risk so that we get the most um, kind of impact from mm-hmm. protecting the people that may have higher likelihood of hospitalization. Is money and funding a constraint? Are you limited or is Mount Sinai, New York or Cedars Sinai out in L.A.? Are you people limited by the budgeting of the last mile of vaccination? You know, the conversations I've been a part of, budgeting isn't as much of an issue. Certainly, these things are all very expensive. It's how do we functionally get it done and deal with the financial consequences later. Certainly, you know, tremendous work needed, tremendous people resources needed to make that happen. Is there a skill to giving a vaccine? My skill is to hold somebody's hand because I know it's going to hurt so much. I'm kidding, folks. But is there a a skill? Is there a skill to giving a shot? So the actual functionality of giving a shot can be done by, you know, medical professionals at different levels. You do, on the off chance that there is a reaction to the vaccine, need to have people able to respond quickly Mm -hmm. if someone has a reaction. So you do need medical professionals there. It can't just be, yeah. I mean, I remember, Katie, the leap from tetracycline out to acetaminophen. And, you know, there was some real doubt about all these modern, fancy antibiotics. What have you learned in a number of weeks about our confidence in having these vaccines, both shots? Yeah, so certainly we have seen an increase in people's confidence as more and more people get vaccinated. Having said that, we still have a huge, huge, huge way to go to get the protection our community needs. Well, we got a huge way to go, but do we do that with an increasing confidence or are we just sort of there and and we have to get it done? And do do you suggest that there'll be societal constraints that will force vaccination? Um. You know, I think it's unlikely as far as mandatory vaccination. Is that kind of what you're saying? Like, Yeah, or an airline says you're not getting on board if you don't have a vaccine. 
Yeah, so certainly I think private entities may go that route and specifically kind of travel related, you know, requiring proof of vaccination mm -hmm. to get on a plane and go to certain areas. Certainly I think that's yeah. possible. You know, at the governmental le level, I think less likely, at least for a very long time, um, that will happen. The timeline of these sophisticated mRNA vaccines is, you know, for anybody that studied this and a pro like you or a hack like me, it's really, really something. How close are we to what Peter Hotez of Baylor College of Medicine talks about, which is a low-cost traditional vaccine to really get this done? Where are we in that? Yeah, certainly getting closer by the day. So the mRNA story is amazing and happened safely and rapidly over a very short period of time. But that doesn't mean that other vaccine candidates, traditional vaccine candidates, like you mentioned, weren't being worked on at the same time. So more and more um, research studies are going on mm -hmm. to get the level of data to make sure that type of vaccine is protective. And, you know, the cost, the um, handling of the current mRNA vaccines are hugely, hugely kind of blocking getting them out. So as we get these more can more of these candidates that are more easily usable and distributable um, out, it's it's hugely important. There's a ton of work going on to make that happen. Do you envision the Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina folks, the Charlotte Convention Center being used as the vaccine site? Is that where we're heading? You know, certainly the health department is already <clears throat> using um, Bojangles Coliseum to vaccinate people. You know, I do think we are going to need larger venues to get the volume of people vaccinated that we need. That's going to mean private health care, you know, public health department, all groups kind of working together to make that happen. What have you learned about the shock? I mean, so many people are concerned about the shock. And there's this report and that report, one out of a million, one out of 100,000, whatever those numbers are. Are those numbers contained and appropriate? Or do you have any concern about the research on shock? Yeah, so certainly the numbers have continued to be low of people that have anaphylactic shock or shock-like reactions <clears throat> following the vaccine, which is reassuring as we go out to larger and larger groups of people. Um, certainly, you know, we need to continue to monitor, but you know, those I would just reinforce that those numbers do stay low and happen in a very small number of people, and the vast majority of people do just fine after the first dose and the second dose. The second dose, what does the second dose do? I really haven't seen a good article on this. I mean, you know, in the old days, folks, we had booster shots. Is that what this is? It's just a yeah, booster shot? Yeah, it's a it is essentially acting like a booster shot. So to kind of the initial ones kind of priming your immune system, your protective system, and then the second dose um, kicks it up further to hopefully get longer duration of protection, higher level of protection. But with that, we do see some more side effects as far as arm pain, fevers, feeling kind of crummy, especially yeah. in kind of 25 to 55 after that second shot. So people just need yeah. to be prepared for that. Dr. Passaretti, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it with Adrian. Health Director. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>